Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, everybody, we're going to do a little audience participation today. So I invite you for the first you know, 10 minutes or so of the message is we're going to do a little quiz. I invite you, if you know the answers, shout it right out, okay? I want to test your knowledge of famous graves in the world, okay? Let's start with this one. Whose grave do you think this is? There you go. I like it, Heidi. Just shout it out. It's an easy one, right? If you know it, yeah. It's it, the raven, quote the raven, nevermore. It's an easy one. Now, fun fact about Edgar Allan Poe, there is a Poe toaster, a mysterious figure all clad in black who shows up every year on Edgar Allan Poe's birthday and toasts him with a glass of cognac, and no one knows who the Poe toaster is. So, interesting little story about that. How many of you uh, know the tomb of Norma Jean Baker? Maybe you know Marilyn Monroe, known by your Hollywood name, right? So interesting, this little fact about Marilyn Monroe's tomb, that roses were delivered to her grave three times a week, six roses by her husband, Joe DiMaggio, as long as he lived. Now, this is the other interesting part. A few years ago, her, her crypt made headlines again because the neighboring crypt was put up for sale, and the person... The, the one, the auction paid $2 million for the right to lay next to Marilyn Monroe throughout all eternity, I guess. So anyways, um, now whose tomb do you think this is? Now, some of you said his stage name, Toto, but it actually is Terry the Terrier who played Toto in the movies, which I think how unoriginal a name could you get for a terrier? Terry! Uh, <laughs> anyways, that's Terry the Terrier, or better known as Toto. Now, who do you think this is who's buried on an island in the middle of Oval Lake? 
Someone said it. Princess die. And you're asking to yourself, maybe, why can't you get a closer picture of the grave? Well, that's because public access to that island is restricted. Because the family wanted to give Princess Di the, the security and serenity and separation from the public eye that she never got in her, in, her, in her life. While we're across the pond, you know, over in Britain, here's another one. Who wrote these words and placed them over his grave? I didn't, even, I didn't even finish reading them, but yes, it is Shakespeare. Good friend, for Jesus' sake, prepared to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these bones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. He, like Diana, didn't want to be disturbed, but he was buried in a public place in an abbey. And unfortunately, his warning went unheeded. A few years ago, they did a, like a scan of his grave. I don't know, like a radio scan or x-ray somehow. And they found out that his skull is missing. Which, in my head, I just picture someone doing the Hamlet speech to be or not to be with Shakespeare's actual skull. Anyways, um, let's, let's bring it back to our country. Uh, there's a lot of uh, graves I, I thought about doing of you know, Abraham Lincoln, JFK, but this one I found particularly moving, and the name's on there, so you're going to guess it right away. But every election season, women placed I voted stickers on her grave. Susan B. Anthony, and I just find that to be so beautiful and moving. But perhaps one of the most moving uh, tombs in our country is this one. Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Yeah, in Arlington Cemetery, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Uh, if you don't know the story behind it, in World War, at the end of World War I, uh, so many uh, soldiers, American soldiers, fought overseas and died and were buried in the battlefields there. And it was the first time where we had hundreds of thousands of American soldiers who, who, who died on foreign soil. And so following the war, Congress enacted legislation, and the legislation read to bring home uh, one unknown soldier who represents no race, no creed, uh, no station, but who embodies the, the spirit of America and the heroic sacrifice of her dad. And so when the unknown soldier was brought back, um, unearthed and brought back, where he was led in state through, uh, throughout all of Washington, D.C., and the whole country paused for two minutes. Can you imagine our whole country stopping for two minutes while, while he was interred in the, unknown, in the tomb of the unknown soldier? It's currently kept watch by the 3rd Regiment, 3rd uh, Infantry Regiment. If you've never been to Arlington Cemetery and seen the changing of the guard, it's something uh, powerful to witness and behold. But that is not the most visited tomb in our country. Can you name the most visited tomb in the United States of America? Not John F. Kennedy. Elvis, there you go. Graceland, over 6 million people per year visit and pay homage to Elvis. And there's all kinds, trust me, if you go online, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories about this grave and about whether Elvis might still, in fact, be alive. So just know that's a wormhole you don't want to go down. So. But these, uh, these are famous kind of graves of the modern era, but even in antiquity, uh, you know, back in Jesus' time and before, graves were notable. People knew them throughout the world. So here's a couple others. Just see if you can recognize. Can you guess whose grave this is? King Tut. King Tut, which every time I say King Tut, Tutankhamun, to, to say, whenever I say King Tut, I think of Steve Martin, you know, doing his dance on SNL. Uh, but King, this is King Tut's 
King Tut's script is a, Tutankhamun's script is, he was a minor pharaoh in Egypt. He ruled less than a decade. And so it's a very small crypt in the Valley of the Kings. And that's why it went undiscovered for so long. And it wasn't you know, raided by robbers. And that's the Valley of the Kings there that you're looking at. And in and, and all of the tombs within Valley of the Kings, which are impressive nonetheless, they all pale in comparison, of course, to the great pyramids that were built 1,200 years before. Inside each one of those pyramids is one tomb. For one king. Now the pyramids, of course, were one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. Another great wonder of the ancient world was also a tomb. This building, can you name it? It is the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. So you just learned something today. Mausoleum of Halicarnassus. It's built. Now I always thought when you say the mausoleum Halicarnassus, I thought, well, that meant the person inside it was named Halicarnassus, but that's actually where it's located. It was built by the ruler Mausolos in the fourth century. So when we talk about mausoleum, the name, now you know where that name comes from. Another little factoid tidbit to tuck away. The most famous mausoleum though, was not in the Western hemisphere, but in the Eastern hemisphere, the mausoleum of Emperor Qin of China in the third century. We know it because of the terracotta army. Emperor King came to power when he was only 13 years old. And immediately, as soon as he rose to power, work began commissioned for his tomb one day. He had a very long reign. And so over the course of his reign, 700,000 workers worked on his tomb and on the terracotta army in order to produce an army of 8,000 soldiers, 700 horses, 130 chariots. Quite impressive, right? Now, a century later, well, another famous tomb is, the, is the, 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 the tombs of Petra, one of the modern uh, wonders of the world. This is the building known as the treasury, but it's not actually a treasury. It's a tomb, and it's one of many tombs like it built into the side, into the, 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 the side of the cliff wall, the sandstone. And, and they're just simply spectacular and amazing, all the tombs in that hidden city. And then the most famous tomb in all of history we know it. It's the tomb of Jesus Christ. The tomb that is famous because it's empty. But I have a little secret to tell you guys. Something I learned last year when I went to the Holy Lands. If you're trying to go and see the tomb of Jesus Christ, it does not look like that picture. Not at all. In fact, there's disputes about what is the actual site of where Jesus was buried. The most commonly accepted site is at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sprawling, beautiful, magnificent church at the end of the Via Della Rosa in the old city of Jerusalem. Now, if you kind of walk along the Via Della Rosa, it kind of leads you into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the first thing you see on the ground is this big marble stone, this, this stone slab. And we were told that that was the stone on which they laid Jesus uh, and prepared him for burial. When we were there, everyone, like, they, they, this was not one of my pictures because when we were there, it was surrounded by people who were praying, kneeling, putting their hands upon the stone. Now, from that stone to one side, there's this big staircase going up to where Golgotha was. And then there's another kind of, you know, big entryway that you could take to the side. And you go through there and you go into this beautiful dome in which is the tomb of Jesus. And there's a shrine built over that tomb called the Edicule. Again, this picture was not from my own records because when I was there, it was way crowded. And literally, like the line just wrapped all the way around back and forth. It was like bigger than Disney World, kind of big lines, you know. And, and so we were told our group had one hour 
in the, in the church of the Holy Sepulchre to explore. And we were told that you don't have time to see both Golgotha and the tomb. You got to pick which one you're going to go to. So Jamelin and I, we kind of divided. Jamelin went to Golgotha and I got in line to, to enter into the edicule. There are four of us that waited that uh, we waited about the whole hour and went into the shrine. And it's this very small shrine. Only four people can get in at a time. And in the shrine, there's two little rooms. The first room has a, a fragment of stone encased in plexiglass that they believe was, you know, that, that they hold to be uh, a fragment of the stone that was rolled away. And then you go into the next little room and there's a big marble altar, like a big marble slab that's been laid on top. Underneath is Jesus's burial bed. And, and that's... That's it. You had, we had about one minute total. Like you could just get to take it. One of the members of our group took a picture, even though they had told us not to take a picture. I was so worried it was going to be an international incident. We were all going to kicked out. So she took a quick picture and then that way we were out. Right. You know, and, um, and I, just to be honest with you, it takes a lot of imagination to connect that to the empty tomb of Jesus. It, it, it doesn't look anything like it. And then, thankfully, though, there are other sites. And one of the other sites is called the Garden Tomb, just outside of the current city walls of Jerusalem. And the Garden Tomb is less crowded, uh, it's better preserved, and it's better preserved partially because it was just recently discovered in 1894. And, and the beautiful thing about the Garden Tomb is you get to go into the tomb itself, and it gives you a wonderful picture of what a first century tomb looked like, that there's this antechamber, you know, the first room you enter into, where Jesus's body or anyone's body would have been prepared, uh, wrapped in linens and spices, and then they would have been laid. And, and you can see there's actually multiple beds, C, F, and G, in the other ones, like kind of a, a, a you know, three different uh, beds. And, and Jesus would have been in C, where you could have seen him, from, or at least his linens, from the entryway. Now, because it was a family crypt, it was quite an act of sacrifice that Joseph of Arimathea made. Our guide told us that uh, when Joseph of Arimathea, you know, surrendered their family crypt, you know, newly carved and built uh, to, to Jesus and, and his, his wife was furious with him. Like, how could you allow a non-family member to take our family crypt? And, and Joseph replied and he said, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. He's just borrowing it for the weekend. I, uh, Mike, that's when you're supposed to do the rim shot, but I'm shit. <laughs> it's a terrible joke. I can't believe I read, like, it was one of those things where the guy told it to me. I was like, oh, that's a bad joke. And then I found myself going, oh, I'm going to tell that joke again. And just <laughs> see if it works. So anyway, the, the garden tomb does give us a beautiful picture of what it looked like, the, you know, what a first century tomb looks like. But truthfully, there's nothing in particular that would mark it as Jesus's tomb in particular. It's something you have to take on faith. When we asked our guide, is this the place? The best they could say is, well, it could have been, it might be. And so after we went to these two different sites, you know, that evening, our group, uh, everyone was kind of talking and we were all, everyone was asking the question, which do you think it was? The church of the Holy Sepulchre, the garden tomb, you know, were we there or not? And, 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 and I was, you know, my response as a pastor, when all my wisdom was just a big shrug, like, I don't know. But as I've reflected on it, I thought maybe that's the point, is that maybe we're not supposed to know exactly where the tomb is, because the truth is, 
For the early Christians, it wasn't important where the tomb was because that wasn't where they located Jesus. The early, the first visitors to the tomb, what did the angels say to them? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. You weren't supposed to look for Jesus in a grave. Jesus is alive. We locate his presence among us today. So this is the good news we celebrate. Jesus is alive. He is risen indeed. Now, after we had those two days, uh, or went to those two sites in Jerusalem, the interesting thing about our trip is we, we, we ended our time in Jerusalem, and then we went over to Jordan. And so the last thing I saw in, in Jerusalem was Jesus' grave. The first thing I saw in Jordan were those tombs of Petra. And because I saw them back to back, I couldn't help but compare them in my mind. And so in Petra, let me just take you back to Petra for just a moment. I showed you the big, magnificent tombs, but, but it was interesting. There were hundreds of tombs in that sacred city, in that, in that valley. Uh, they called the Seek, the sacred valley. And, and, and in the, those tombs, there was this, I don't know what to call it, there was a gradation of tombs. Like there were huge and magnificent ones that were for the rulers and the kings. But then they had less big tombs that might, you know, a little less ornate, something like that, that might be a, a lesser ruler or a court official. And then they had others that were kind of even less ornate than that, more simple, just with a little triangle, you know, little stair steps above them. And those were for, you know, maybe priests, you know, religious officials, or maybe for merchants or artisans who are wealthy. But in other words, and then there were others that were even more simple than that. My point is, is how big your tomb in, was in Petra, it indicated what position you held in that society. The greater your wealth, the greater your authority, the greater your influence, the bigger the tomb you had. So you build a big tomb as a way of proclaiming your glory, as a way of kind of, you know, establishing your legacy, ensuring that generations to come would remember and know your name. That was why you built a great big old tomb. That's kind of the way all those tombs in antiquity were built as a way of securing your legacy. And I find myself comparing back to Jesus's tomb, right? He was crucified as a criminal, hung between two thieves. When he was buried, there was no pomp, no circumstance, no procession. He wasn't buried with a lot of riches and wealth. He was hastily placed in. In fact, they had to bury him so hastily, they didn't have time to anoint his body with the proper spices, perform the proper burial rituals because Sabbath was coming. That's why the women went back on Easter morning in order to finish the job. Joseph of Arimathea was, was wealthy in Jewish society, but compare this stone, this grave to the ones we just saw in Petra, there's no comparison between the two. And so I, just to sum it up, here's the way I thought of it. I said, you know, in, in Petra, the, the tombs were large and ornate, and Jesus' tomb was small and simple. The tombs in Petra, they proclaimed wealth and authority. Jesus' tomb, is, it proclaims poverty and necessity. The tombs in Petra are still preserved. You can go and visit them to him. Jesus' tomb, it's, well, it's, it's, it's quite unknown, honestly, where it is. The tombs in Petra, they proclaim self-glory. Look at me. Admire my wealth. Remember my name, self-glory. But Jesus' tomb proclaims God's glory which paradoxically is known not through self-glory, but through self-sacrifice. In other words, when I went to the tombs of Petra, I stood and I marveled at the tombs. You, I, I, you can't help but marvel at them. They're beautiful. 
But when I went to Jesus's tomb, perhaps because there wasn't much to look at, I didn't marvel at the tomb. I marveled at the man who is indeed is more than a man who is the son of the living God. That's what we're meant to marvel at when we consider the empty tomb of Jesus. The tombs of Petra, they proclaim victory in life. However, you know, whatever measuring stick they used, whether it's wealth or power or accomplishment, success, those great big old tombs, they proclaim victory. Look what I've done. The tomb of Jesus proclaims victory over death. A much greater victory indeed. A handful of weeks ago, we had a funeral here in this, in this sanctuary, in this space. It was crowded, kind of like today, because it was a young person who passed, someone who was well-loved, not just by her family, but in the community. I mean, it was, and we were all wrestling with her death, um, by her untimely death, and, and her, her, you know, trying to, wrestling with, with if, if her husband said to me, you know, if there was someone you thought you could, was going to beat cancer, you would have thought it would be her. And so when some friends stood up to give eulogy, they wanted to hold up the, the fact that she did beat cancer, and they pointed to a quote from Stuart Scott. Stuart Scott, late ESPN broadcaster, uh, when he received the SP, no, not the SP, the Jimmy V Award, in his speech at the Jimmy V Award, he said, when you die, that doesn't mean you lose to cancer. You beat cancer by how you live, why you live, and in the manner in which you live. So live, he said, live and fight like hell. That was his speech. What I love about that quote from Stuart Scott is he captures well a battle that every single one of us faces in life. We've, we are all battling on some level against death. And how do we beat death? Well, Stuart Scott says, well, you do it by, by not allowing death to define yourself, to define your life, to rob you of your days. You beat death by, feeding, by facing it with courage and strength. And I do believe there is a victory in that. But when I talk about Jesus Christ having victory over death, I'm not talking about that kind of victory. Yes, Jesus lived a good life. And yes, Jesus faced death with courage. And yes, he loved his enemies. He treated everyone, not just well, above and beyond well. But that's not how Jesus beat death. Jesus beat death through the resurrection. This is the proclamation of Easter. That death could not hold on to Jesus. That his life did not end in death, but it ended in resurrection and continues now where he lives and reigns on high with the Father who has given him a name that is above all or every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and earth and every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the proclamation of Easter. I love this passage from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, And Christ must rule until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I know from where we stand, when we look out at the world, it doesn't always look like death is destroyed. We, we see death in a lot of different places. But this is the proclamation of Easter. 
is that the end of death has been spoken. The power of death has been broken. The battle is won. The checkmate is done. Death is defeated through the power of Jesus Christ. Great theologian Karl Barth once wrote, wrote, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great verdict of God, the fulfillment and proclamation of God's decision concerning the event of the cross. It is God's great verdict, his vindication of the son's sufferings, God's acceptance of his offering on our behalf, God's confirmation of the words Jesus spoke upon the cross. It is finished. Love's redeeming work is done. You see, Easter is the beginning of the end. It's the start of a new creation into which you and I can enter if we profess faith in Jesus Christ. So let me take you back for a moment to Stuart Scott. Remember he said, when you die, it doesn't mean that you lose to cancer, you beat cancer by how you live, why you live, and the manner in which you live. And I love that quote. I think it's true in so many ways, but I didn't read the entire quote to you. Because then he continued, he said, so live. Live, fight like hell. And when you get too tired to fight, lay down and rest and let somebody else fight for you. And Stuart Scott may have been thinking about friends, may have been thinking about others who are fighting for you, but on this Easter Sunday, I proclaim that we have confidence that when our end comes, when we're too tired to fight anymore, we can lay down and rest and trust and let someone else fight for us. When Jesus faced the end of his life, he didn't face it alone. Even though his friends abandoned him, his father did not. And he commended his spirit into the father's hands. And he trusted the father. He allowed the, the father to speak a verdict over his life and over his death. And the verdict was resurrection. And you and I, we have the opportunity, the invitation to do the same to fight, to live, to do everything in our power, to fight the powers of darkness in the world. But at the end of the day, paradoxically, we fight when we surrender our lives to the one who has gone before, who has already fought the battle for us so that he can share his victory with us.